0: Hello and welcome to Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan. Today, I am sharing something really exciting with you all. We recently announced Feedback Corner on all our socials. So if you're not following us, our Instagram is at ImmigrantlyPod and our Twitter is at Immigrantly_Pod, underscore pod it's basically a way for our community to get involved we asked our listeners followers to basically dm us send voice notes or leave a comment about the last episode they listened to and what they learned from it and then we waited patiently for somebody to respond Finally, a couple of listeners shared their thoughts on Ramtin Louis episode titled Who Gets to Be a Citizen of the United States? So, guys, if you haven't listened to this episode, I would suggest doing that first. Anyways, today I'm really excited to share a voice note from Maha Nolasco from Libertyville, Illinois about Ramteen's episode. Here's Maha talking about what she learned from this episode. This was such an enlightening episode. It highlighted how people have experienced immigration in such different ways based upon their country of origin or the time in which they migrated. It was interesting to hear the Chinese immigration experience and how it related to the political and historical context. Brings up a great conversation on belonging and assimilation. Thanks, Maha, for sending us feedback. You made my day, and please, Send us your suggestions, feedback, and comments on today's episode, and we will play it during our interviews. You can send us information on info at immigrantlypod.com or you can simply DM us on our socials. Moving on to today's episode, I will start by asking you a question. Have you ever considered who your parents were before you came into the picture? I think it's one of those universal thoughts because it's a mystery we can never truly solve. Our families may tell us things about our parents' day-to-day personalities, interactions, and quirks, but there will always be gaps in the story, right? It happens to me a lot of times. For Neda Louise Semnani, understanding who her parents were and what motivated them to participate in the 1979 Iranian Revolution. As young Iranian activists became crucial to making sense of her present. Born to a nation marked by political upheaval and now a Brooklyn-based Emmy Award-winning writer and reporter, Neda is no stranger to the fabrics of social change and the equally vital need to document such history. Her father was imprisoned and killed by the Islamic Republic while her then-pregnant mother and three-year-old Neda escaped Iran for America. After her mother passed away, Neda tried to comprehend why her parents did what they did, which could be argued as both brave sacrifices and selfish risks. Her book, They Said They Wanted Revolution, A Memoir of My Parents, published this past February, details her discovering, in fact, rediscovering personal history against a more prominent political backdrop. Neda works for Vice News Night and has appeared in numerous publications, such as The Washington Post, King Folk and The Week, and platforms like The Rumpus and This American Life. We had a fantastic conversation about the literary and emotional journey behind the memoir, what intersections exist between journalism and storytelling, and how they are tools for uncovering the truth and preserving memory. So, let's get started. Thank you, Neda, for of being on Immigrantly. I am really
1: excited. How's your day going so far? You know, it's good. I'm, you know, like the news is the news and I cover it. And it, some days it can be harder than others. So today isn't as bad as other days. Oh, that's good. <laughs> yeah. That's good to know. So we'll center this conversation
0: on your book. Okay. Which I started reading and I was blown away because it's so evocative, intense. It's the kind of book that I felt invested in. I felt like I was getting to know your parents. I could feel your pain and your curiosity through that book juxtaposes different parts of yours and your parents' identities, but primarily it centers on your parents' lives, right? Mm. From their unfettered leftist activism at Berkeley in the 60s and 70s to their ultimate decision to go back to Iran in 1979, which basically changed the course of your and their lives forever. Yeah. But before we delve into that, I want you to to paint us a picture of your parents' lives, their characters in the 60s and 70s in the U.S.
1: as young activists. First of all, thank you. And thank you for those kind, really kind words about the book as first generation. It feels really good when other people connect to it Mm. from Mm. this community. Because I do think there's so many themes that are universal and at the same time specific to our Experience as immigrants and then children of immigrants. So, my parents both came to the US from Iran at different times. And I think that really informed their lives in the 60s and 70s. My mom came over when she was 10 in the late 50s and she landed in San Francisco, you know, I think when we talk about the 60s, we're really talking about a certain time in the 60s, but we forget that the late 1950s and the early 1960s, there was this beginning of these various movements, the free speech Mm -hmm. movement in Berkeley, but probably more importantly, the civil rights movement Mm. around the country. And obviously that had been percolating for arguably hundreds of years, but in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, we're talking about the Freedom Rides are starting. Like It feels like there's a sea change happening. And in California, there was the idea of politics, this politicization, I guess, was sort of in the air from where my mother Mm -hmm. was growing up. And even though she would have said that up until she started going to berkeley she wasn't particularly political it was sort of seeped in and then my dad came over when he was a little older he was 18 it was again the early 60s and he immigrated to missouri sort of the middle of the country oh wow yeah a small (laughs) college in rolla missouri which actually seemed to have an international community because it was a engineering college But it was also exactly what you would think Missouri would be in the early 1960s. And once he came to the States when he was 18, he never went back to Iran until 1979. Wow. So, you know, it's a true coming-of-age story in a certain way for both of my parents who came into their political lives in the U.S. So in some ways, they are so deeply rooted in Iran and Iranian culture. But what they really seeped up from the U.S. was this political existence and like the time of it, you know. So by the time they got to Berkeley, it was 1960. My dad, it was 1967, which was the summer of love. My mom, it was 1969, right after the bloody Thursday riots and That was this clash between students and like the political activists and essentially police Mm -hmm. and the National Guard. And it was over a small park in Berkeley, but it was about so much more. So my mom had said, you know, when she came into Berkeley that first day trying to find housing, the city was smoking, like it looked like it had been under attack. And so these two people kind of came of age really like Mm. grew up and when you're young when you're in that moment and you are trying on different personality traits or you're figuring out what you're gravitating towards it was such like um I keep saying the word it was a heady time to be alive and to be Mm. young because young people were actually actively changing the world and it wasn't just in the U.S. and it wasn't just in Berkeley, they were looking at Europe, they were looking at the former colonies and in Latin America and South America. One after another, these old regimes were toppling and young people were pushing through these more idealistic governments. And they were curious, and they had found, by the time they got to Berkeley, there was a big Iranian community there, all young, and suddenly, you know, when you are far from home and far from the rules, right? and you get to figure out what your own rules are, and who your community is, and who are your people, and that's where their early years at Berkeley really happened. And I think there's something, one of the things I hope came through in the book was, like, that feeling of excitement when your life is just beginning? You
0: know, I can almost imagine them being there and having these conversations. We see a lot of people in their 20s having those conversations now, right? Mm -hmm. But Neda, I want to bring in something else, which I want to run parallel to what was happening in the U.S. Mm -hmm. In U.S. psyche, Iran holds this... Weird, evilish place, Mm. right? And there is very little understanding of the 60s and 70s. Shah of Iran is a revered figure in America because he was more westernized and he allowed women to wear skirts Mm -hmm. (laughs) versus (laughs) what was really happening on the ground. And we can trace it back to Iranian minerals and oil and Western imperialism and so much more. Yeah. So I want you to give us a snapshot of what was really happening in Iran and why young folks living so far away felt the need to enact a change or be part of it.
1: Yeah, I think one of the great injustices that we as Americans have done has limit our understanding of our own history. Right. And I think that's part and parcel of like our tendency towards exceptionalism and isolationism. And I think one of the things that means is that rich complicated history that we have in shaping nations and having nations shape us has been sort of wiped out of our understanding. So Hmm. that's preamble to say Iran, as we know it today, wouldn't have existed without the U.S. and vice versa. I think it's true as well. I think the U.S. really started coming into Iran in the early 1950s. The U.S. up until that point had sort of dabbled in coup land, in instating their own people. But our first real sort of planned out coup was Operation Ajax, which was in Iran, which brought the Shah back into full power by removing the prime minister, Mossadegh. And you're right, like, so much of this was about who gets control over oil, and natural resources, but also who gets the ear, who gets the most influence. So up until a certain point, it was the British. And then once the U.S. kind of brought the Shah back in, they also agreed to a certain amount of aid. And that, like, started this relationship between the U.S. and the Shah's regime. Again, three weeks after the coup happened the US had started this organization called American Friends of the Middle East. Anyway, the student side of that really started to take off. But almost from the beginning, like three weeks after the coup, there was a meeting in the US and the Iranian students in that meeting talked about how furious they were mm. that the U.S. was meddling. Right. So I think one of the revisionist histories that has happened is that the Iranian revolution came out of nowhere and that America was taken by surprise. But that was kind of an indication of what was to come. And the Iranian student movement has a long and storied history in Iran, but that was when it started in the States. Mm-hmm. and it was a transnational movement, which I think is like really important to know as well. But anyway, so as the Iranian student movement was growing in the States and abroad, The other thing that was happening was the Shah was making a lot more money and he had the support of the U.S. And that sort of success and financial gain wasn't being experienced in the rest of the country at the same level. And he was trying very hard to keep the country as secular as possible for lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. But one of them is that there was a Byron Brimstone cleric called the Ayatollah Khomeini who was very popular and very against the Shah for lots of reasons. I get into it in my book, but there are plenty of really detailed histories about it. Right. But this is all to say that the U.S. having an interest in Iran, the Shah needing the U.S. to buoy his power, and the rise of the Ayatollah Khomeini, along with sort of that parallel history of the Iranian students. Abroad starting Hmm. to like come into their own as a political movement happened over the two decades up until the Iranian Revolution. And all these forces are sort of pushing and pulling against each other. And my family, as I outline in the book, is in some part of all of that, except for the cleric part. But yeah, I mean, my parents were part of the Iranian student movement. My grandmother got an early student visa after the coup to come to the U.S. And my aunt and uncle on my mother's side worked in the Shah's administration. And so my family's history sort of uniquely but I suspect this happens to a lot more of us than we know is very much a part of the political history of both countries.
0: Absolutely and something to note here is when we think of Iranian revolution we only think of the islamists mm-hmm. right but it was a coalition of some militant groups coalition of leftists and that's where your parents' role becomes more visible because they are approaching it from a very different point of view versus what Khomeini's
1: proponents were viewing it as. Absolutely. That's a critical point, is my parents were, again, very much people of their time. The 1960s, obviously, or this time, kind of in the middle of the 20th century, was a time when people were really embracing, some people were embracing leftist ideology and really like pushing and pulling and trying to figure out what it meant, whether they were Trotskyites or Marxist-Leninists or Maoists and on and on and on, what it meant and how to turn theory into practice. I think that is the most interesting part of this history is the leftists trying to put theory into practice. And likewise, the Islamists, the people who are pushing for theocracy, also trying to put theory into practice. And arguably, we can say like, Capitalism, the same thing, was being put into practice. And so that was, you know, again, my family wasn't part of the Islamists, but in the early part of the student movement, everyone was sort of the people who were secular Working against the Shah, the people who were Marxist, Leninist, leftists, new leftists, working against the Shah, worked together. The people who were Islamists were part of these coalitions abroad. Sometimes it was an uneasy alliance. I'm sure, yeah. For a lot of years that they coexisted, and then once the revolution actually happened, once the Shah left and Khomeini came in, then fractures that were showing up within individual groups really started to take hold. And clear, I think, winners and losers started showing up.
0: Neda, but your parents went back Mm -hmm. at the time, right? So it shows their resolve and their belief in what was happening on the ground in Iran. But I am curious to know if, given the fact that they were physically removed from the movement. They were living in the U.S. Mm. They had a more romanticized version of what was really happening and how Khomeini was solidifying power and making changes that may not have been as visible to your parents who were living in the U.S. at the time.
1: Yes, I think anytime. You are removed from a situation, you have a very specific point of view. I mean, arguably, that was true for Khomeini as well. He was in exile for, give or take, the same amount of time that my dad was. They actually, I'm thinking about this now, they both left in 63, 62, 63, and then came back within a month (laughs) or so of each other. So, yes, I mean, I think when Khomeini came back to Iran, it was after many years of millions of people working towards a specific goal, hundreds of thousands, if not towards the end, millions of people on the street marching. And really, I really suggest people who are interested in this history go and look at pictures of the protests in Tehran in late 1978. I mean, it's extraordinary, just the sheer mass of humanity that gathered Ah. to demand to have a voice in their own politics, I think is really something that's like an extraordinary thing to watch. Even now, it's something I've never seen in my lifetime. So when Khomeini landed in Tehran, I think there was this idea that he understood why he was there, that this wasn't an Islamist handover. This was a coalition. And I think where my parents They landed in sort of their ideal reality, which was this mix of political ideologies. I mean, my mom would say that like every day you would go out on the street and someone would be standing on a corner, like spouting their views into the air. A new newspaper would open up and, you know, Mm -hmm. like... It was just like a vibrant time people were saying what they thought and they would weren't scared you know that they were going to be arrested or in jeopardy at that point point. and of course that was true for my mom and that was true for my dad perhaps but it wasn't true for the royalists so i mean this is all to say that we all see the world sometimes from the position that we are interacting with it they also missed signs of relatively early on the islamists were the ones that were solidifying power for i think lots of reasons but Probably because they had somebody on some level at the top who, you know, was this real character, this charismatic leader that the left and the other groups didn't have.
0: Didn't have. Absolutely. That's such an important point.
1: Yeah. And he had a very clear, I mean, Khomeini also wrote very clearly what he thought the government structure should be Mm. so I think one of the things that's true often in revolutions or in revolts where where systems are being toppled is that it is sometimes not that it's easy to topple a system it's not but that people can demand change and then there's that moment where you have to rebuild you have to have a plan and if you don't have a plan then you know there's a power vacuum that opens up
0: And sometimes there are unintended consequences. Right. Talking about plans, I know you wrote somewhere that you wish your parents had a plan or a better plan, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, having done the research, having read through your own journals and having spoken to so many people, do you think it was even possible for them, given the circumstances that they could plan something or plan anything
1: at the time? (laughs) I don't think many of us can plan anything, even if our lives aren't in upheaval, you know, or we aren't working towards revolution. I think on some level, it was naive of me to demand that they understood the gravity of their choices and then were able to make decisions accordingly. But obviously, I think some of that was a very young place demanding parenting and demanding somebody is taking care of me. I mean, I say this in the book I think more than once is that the world sometimes feels so big and I often felt quite small and quite vulnerable and I think that's when you really want your parents to know more than they do and as I get older and I'm a parent now one of the things that I feel like is more and more clear is how little idea I really have about what is coming next and I also think The other true thing is I grew up in the 80s and 90s in the northeast of the mid-Atlantic region in the U.S. So most of my life was a pretty calm, sort of peaceful existence here up until I would say like 9-11 and then upheaval happened and so I think I had very little empathy for what it means to live in a time of upheaval and I think now I understand that there isn't a whole lot of information you don't know what you're doing you're just doing your best I think you know I say this in the book I wanted it to be more complicated but it's Hmm. really in some ways it's a story of people desperately trying to both make the world a better place and do their best to survive the world When you were
0: chronicling all of this, and I see the structure of your book, you go back and forth and you run parallel stories, right? So there is one story that's happening in one space and time, and then there's another story that you're running parallel. Mm-hmm. I wonder why did you choose that structure?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the structure of the book is, first of all, it was very conscious, but there is was sort of a message in the structure. And part of that is... The book is literally divided in three parts. It's the past, before I was born, where it's all the same narrator. Obviously, it's me. But there is a bit more distance. There's perhaps more history, perhaps more softness that happens when you've heard stories from a real distance. Then the middle of the book, as you say, when we're in Iran, it's my dad's trial and our escape and his eventual execution, that's much more immersive. That's after I've been born. But it's also, I think a lot of this part of my life happened when I was a toddler, when I was a young hmm. child. And I did a lot of research on childhood development and try to figure out like, what does it mean to have experienced these issues? How come some images stay with me and some don't? How come it's lingered in my life for so long? In other words, what was it that happened then that really changed me sort of into the beginning stages of who i would be as later hmm. and so one of the ways that i really focused on that part of my character was really immersive journalism like details and stuff because i figured as a child your sentences are quite short but the world feels in technicolor in some sense hmm. and then the last part of the book was this chronicle of my journals, letters, and sort of my correspondence with my mom? And I wanted to sort of give space. I don't think that young people, specifically people who are refugees, get authority to tell their own stories about how something that happened when they were young can impact them mm-hmm. and like change who they are as people. And so I felt like I had this unique glimpse into how something changed somebody over time and space. And so that was a very tightly woven together part. Talking about
0: change, Nada, I'm sure, as you mentioned, it changed your mom drastically Mm. from this young leftist activist risk taker Mm -hmm. to somebody else who probably had a different personality. Mm. So growing up, How did you see that evolution happen with your mom? And were you even aware of it happening
1: at the time? I'm sure I wasn't aware. I mean, I think some things are true, right? Like we are born, some part of us is who we are always. And I think my mother was a pretty authentic human. There wasn't much put on about her, which is part of just who she was. I don't think it even would have occurred to her to put on a different persona, But having said that, I think where I realized a lot of her energy was towards grieving and picking up again, when I got to know her in my 20s, my teenagers and in my 20s, I got to see a lighter side to my mother, a more like joyful side. And that was always part of who she was. But when I was younger, I remember telling her, I always thought she was much more serious. And knowing my mother later in life, I realized that wasn't the case. But I think doing the research for this book and realizing how much she lost in such a short period of time and how hard that must have been. Not just losing my father, but losing her country, losing dozens of friends, really feeling the weight of her political activity not maybe turning out the way she had hoped. Hmm. But the thing that is... I think so extraordinary about her was her resiliency and her ability to integrate all of that into herself. And she was really an extraordinarily strong woman. I mean, she could like bend people to her will without (laughs) them realizing it. So in many ways, she was an extraordinary and exceptional woman. It was a pleasure and an honor to be able to watch her. But again, I think it changed her a lot but she also had that, I don't know if you are going to know what I'm talking about, but there's a certain generation, especially I think of people who like immigrated from certain countries who refuse to acknowledge the trauma that is ha, part of their ha. story. And now it seems crazy. But, you know, I remember growing up, mom would be like, this was really hard, but also it's fine. Um.
0: <laughs> she went through this unimaginable trauma right? Mm -hmm. To be able to talk about it Mm -hmm. requires a lot of courage and resilience.
1: Yeah. And I'm sure you have seen this too. I do think there is a great deal of healing and also a great deal of power that comes with telling your story. Right, Even if it's just to whoever's sitting next to you or your family. And it's important, I think, to give people space to tell it over and over again. Because one of the cool things I had was I had my mother telling the story through various parts of her life. One interview was from the early 90s. Another interview was a few years later. There was two interviews towards the end of her life, each one sort of recounting the same incidents. But it was very clear that while some of the details didn't change, the way mom told the stories did, which I thought was like, oh, this is why you ask your questions over and over again.
0: In terms of your relationship with your dad, now he was executed when you were young, really young, Mm -hmm. right? So you probably have memories from initial couple of years after you were born, and then you started piecing together different dimensions of his identity through research for this book. Mm Mm-hmm. I wonder if you went in with certain biases or perceptions of who your dad was and that idea or that flavor of the story changed as you got to know him better. Mm -hmm. And what was the biggest surprise, if any?
1: Yeah, I think I was really nervous when I started the project that I would end up finding out something about my dad that would make me, I guess, love him differently i don't want to say less because i don't think that that could have happened i don't know maybe but i was worried about finding out something that would change him for me and i ended up speaking to his the girlfriend that he was with it overlapped with my mother a little bit but the girlfriend who in some ways knew him in this like incredibly specific way that other people didn't and joy i call her joy in the book She was so generous with me, but also loved my father so sort of fiercely even now, or even, you know, at the time of the interview that, first of all, I felt very cared for. And then I was really happy for my dad that he had somebody in his life that loved him so much still, Mm. and at least took up for him and defended him in a way, a big, Thing that I learned from her was that my dad, and this was years before he went back to Iran, had said I'm going to go back to Iran I'm going to be underground, I'm going to be doing all this political work, my life is always going to be at risk, this is why I can't have a family and I was really upset when I learned mm. that because it felt like well if you knew that's what you were going to do why would you have changed course and decided to have a family? And it felt somehow like I had had a question answered that I didn't. And that was like a very special moment for me, but also it was like such a moment of healing for me, especially later as I played it. And then there was another moment where I found out that my father perhaps had done something against somebody else that I certainly would never have wanted him to have done. And that was a hard moment for me because I had heard a story several times and I really latched on to the worst version of that story. And I had to look at myself and wonder, why is it so important that I am focused on the worst case scenario? The scenario where everybody who knew him well was like, this doesn't make any sense. This goes against his character. I feel like now with hindsight, one of the things that felt really important to me is if I can love him even now, even knowing all this... If I can still find my way to the dad that I thought, that I knew, that I have a relationship with, then that's real love. That's something. And I think one of the more subtle, more profound lessons that sort of also happened in that process was me learning not to doubt myself and how well I do know my father, and know where I could be like, okay, sure, there's some doubt here, I'll never know for certain, but what I understand of my father's character, having basically studied it for so long. as a
0: journalist.
1: Yeah, as a journalist, is something else, you know? And so (laughs) I think those were like two moments that were really challenging to me Mm -hmm. and my idea of my dad, but ultimately I think strengthened my relationship with him. And I think like the other thing that has been such a wonderful, Lesson is in some ways I've been grieving people I've lost my whole life since I was a child. I've been grieving in all these different ways through all these different iterations of myself. And the truth of the matter is, my relationship with the people I've lost has grown and changed over time. Obviously, it would have been lovely if the human was here with me, hmm. but our relationship with people who are gone. Doesn't end when they leave, you know. It just absolutely it continues, and that's yeah. something that feels very important to me, and I hold on to.
0: Neda, how did you decide what parts to share with public and what to keep private? And are there any parts that you hold close to your heart and you would never want to share with the rest of the world?
1: You know, it's so hard to say because there were parts. That I think some people in my family would have wished I hadn't shared. I think there's stuff in our lives that happened well after my dad died that sort of have to do with my growing up with my mother and my brother and my stepfather that, not good or bad, it's just, it doesn't feel relevant to share publicly, you know? So I think that's the key for me about sharing. Of course, I want to respect people's privacy, but I think one of the other things that I've learned over the process of almost a decade of trying to get the story out was what parts were mine, and Mm. I felt comfortable being like this, I have ownership over this, I can share this, and then what parts were very firmly somebody else's, and then there's a lot of gray area, right, where there's a lot of negotiation, but I tried to be as respectful as possible. So this
0: memoir started with a lot of questions and confusion about your parents, your past,
1: and even future, right? Mm -hmm.
0: By the end of the process, did you feel like you found what you were looking for?
1: I think when I finished the manuscript, I would have said, who knows, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it's over. Mm -hmm. But I do think what has felt like an ending to this has been the book being out in the world. I obviously have a lot more answers, but I had resigned myself to always feeling unsatisfied or that there would be so many questions. But I realized what I needed was to know that I was seen, but also people like me were seen. Right. And I think our stories are sometimes overlooked or other people get to tell them for us. Absolutely. And I had a series of really beautiful but profound conversations right after the book came out with people who were children of parents who have passed away or themselves, like I said, refugees or immigrants or trying to figure out their parents. And that sort of coming together from all sorts of different countries and cultures around this book and people reaching out to me felt like the end of something in a good way.
0: So Neda, in the end, if you were to define America in the context of its imperialist aspirations Mm -hmm. and their impact on ordinary folks around the world, how would you define America?
1: God, that is, it's like such a heartbreaking question. You know, I don't know. There is part of me that doesn't know that America outside of an idea actually exists anymore. Mm. in the same way that I thought it did when I was growing up. Or maybe it's always been this way. I think, I don't know. I mean, I just, Mm. right now, I think I see so much that hurts and breaks my heart. And when I think about the ricochet of U.S. policies and U.S. foreign policy over the last hundred years, Around the world, and when it's done from the Far East through the Middle East and Latin America and South America and within our own country, I just, first of all, I don't think there's any part of the globe that hasn't been touched by our need for things and also our desperate need to be admired. Yeah. And I think that desperation to be exceptional and to be admired is one of the more dangerous parts of how our country functions in the rest of the world.
0: Absolutely. Spot on. another thank you so much. I mean, this was such a great interview and I'm so glad we could do this. And I wish you could be here <laughs> in the studio because I know you're in Brooklyn. It's not that far, but, know. you know, I will settle for this because it was such an important and great conversation. Before we end, do you want people to buy this book from
1: a particular bookstore or would Amazon do? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, People should buy it from wherever their little heart moves them to buy it from. But if you guys can request it or order it through an independent bookstore, or maybe just tell your bookseller about the book. That would make my heart sing. I think my relationships with books are just wandering in and picking it up. But libraries are good, too.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for that. Thank Have you. Have a wonderful day. You too. This was wonderful. Thank you again. I'm so glad I was able to share Nada's story with all of you. If you have comments, if you've learned something from this story, please do write to us. This episode of Immigrantly was produced by me, Sadia Khan. The content writer for this is Ashley Linuza, editorial review by Yudi Liu. And our amazing, amazing editor is Manny Simone. Until next time when we have another story, take care.